This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Alarms and Discursions by G. K. Chesterton. Section 7. Chapters 19 through 21. The Anarchist. I have now lived for about two months in the country, and have gathered the last rich autumnal fruit of a rural life, which is a strong desire to see London. Artists living in my neighborhood talk rapturously of the rolling liberty of the landscape, the living peace of woods. But I say to them, with a slight Buckinghamshire accent, Ah, that is how Cockneys feel. For us real old country people, the country is reality. It is the town that is romance. Nature is as plain as one of her pigs, as commonplace, as comic, and as healthy. But civilization is full of poetry, even if it be sometimes an evil poetry. The streets of London are paved with gold, that is, with the very poetry of avarice. With these typically bucolic words I touch my hat and go ambling away on a stick with the stiffness of gait proper to the oldest inhabitants, while in my more animated moments I am taken for the village idiot, exchanging heavy but courteous salutations with other gaffers, I reach the station, where I ask for a ticket for London, where the king lives. Such a journey, mingled of provincial fascination and fear, did I successfully perform only a few days ago, and alone and helpless in the capital, found myself in the tangle of roads around the marble arch. A faint prejudice may possess the mind that I have slightly exaggerated my rusticity and remoteness. And yet it is true, as I came to that corner of the park, that, for some unreasonable reason of mood, I saw all London as a strange city, and the civilization itself as one enormous whim. The marble arch itself, in its new insular position, with traffic turning dizzily all about it, struck me as a placid monstrosity. What could be wilder than to have a huge arched gateway, with people going everywhere except under it? If I took down my front door, and stood it up all by itself in the middle of my back garden, my village neighbors, in their simplicity, would probably stare. Yet the marble arch is now precisely that, an elaborate entrance and the only place by which no one can enter. By the new arrangement, its last weak pretense to be a gate has been taken away. The cabman still cannot drive through it, but he can have the delights of riding round it, and even on foggy nights, the rapture of running into it. It has been raised from the rank of a fiction to the dignity of an obstacle. As I began to walk across a corner of the park, this sense of what is strange in cities began to mingle with some sense of what is stern as well as strange. It was one of those queer-colored winter days when a watery sky changes to pink and gray and green like an enormous opal. The trees stood up gray and angular, as if in attitudes of agony, 
and here and there on benches under the trees sat men as grey and angular as they. It was cold even for me, who had eaten a large breakfast and purposed to eat a perfectly gargantuan lunch. It was colder for the men under the trees, and to the eastward through the opalescent haze the warmer whites and yellows of the houses in Park Lane shone as unsubstantially as if the clouds themselves had taken on the shape of mansions to mock the men who sat there in the cold. But the mansions were real, like the mockery. No one worth calling a man allows his moods to change his convictions. But it is by moods that we understand other men's convictions. The bigot is not he who knows he is right. Every sane man knows he is right. The bigot is he whose emotions and imagination are too cold and too weak to feel how it is that other men go wrong. At that moment I felt vividly how men might go wrong, even unto dynamite, if one of those huddled men under the trees had stood up and asked for rivers of blood. It would have been erroneous, but not irrelevant. It would have been appropriate, and in the picture, that lurid grey picture of insolence on one side and impotence on the other. It may be true, on the whole it is, that this social machine which we have made is better than anarchy. Still it is a machine, and we have made it. It does hold those poor men helpless, and it does lift those rich men high, and such men, good Lord. By the time I flung myself on a bench beside another man, I was half inclined to try anarchy for a change. The other was of more prosperous appearance than most of the men on such seats. Still, he was not what one calls a gentleman, and he had probably worked at some time like a human being. He was a small, sharp-faced man, with grave, staring eyes, and a beard somewhat foreign. His clothes were black, respectable, and yet casual, those of a man who dresses conventionally because it was a bore to dress unconventionally, as it is. Attracted by this and other things, and wanting an outburst for my bitter social feelings, I tempted him into speech, first about the cold, and then about the general election. To this the respectable man replied, Well, I don't belong to any party myself. I am an anarchist. I looked up and almost expected fire from heaven. This coincidence was like the end of the world. I had sat down feeling that somehow or other Park Lane must be pulled down, and I had sat down beside the man who wanted to pull it down. I bowed in silence for an instant under the approaching apocalypse, and in that instant the man turned sharply and started talking like a torrent. Understand me, he said. Ordinary people think an anarchist means a man with a bomb in his pocket. Herbert Spencer was an anarchist. But for that fatal admission of his on page 793, he would be a complete anarchist. Otherwise, he agrees wholly with Pidge. This was uttered with such blinding rapidity of syllabification as to be a better test of teetotalism than the Scotch one of saying biblical criticism six times. I attempted to speak, but he began again with the same rippling rapidity. 
You will say that Pidge also admits governments in that tenth chapter so easily misunderstood. Bolger has attacked Pidge on those lines. But Bolger has no scientific training. Bolger is a psychometrist, but no sociologist. To anyone who has combined a study of Pidge with the earlier and better discoveries of Cruxy, the fallacy is quite clear. Bolger confounds social coercion with coercional social action. His rabid, rattling mouth shut quite tight suddenly, and he looked steadily and triumphantly at me with his head on one side. I opened my mouth, and the mere motion seemed to sting him to fresh verbal leaps. Yes, he said, that's all very well. The Finland group has accepted Bolger, but he said suddenly, lifting a long finger as if to stop me. But Pidge has replied. His pamphlet is published. He has proved that potential social rebuke is not a weapon of the true anarchist. He has shown that just as religious authority and political authority have gone, so must emotional authority and psychological authority. He has shown... I stood up in sort of daze. I think you remarked, I said feebly, that the mere common populace do not quite understand anarchism. Quite so, he said with a burning swiftness. As I said, they think any anarchist is a man with a bomb. Whereas... But great heavens, man, I said. It's the man with the bomb that I understand. I wish you had half his sense. What do I care about how many German dons tie themselves in knots about how this society began. My only interest is about how soon it will end. Do you see those fat white houses over in Park Lane where your masters live? He assented and muttered something about concentrations of capital. Well, I said, if the time ever comes when we all storm those houses, will you tell me one thing? Tell me how we shall do it without authority? Tell me how you will have an army of revolt without discipline. For the first instant he was doubtful, and I had bidden him farewell and cross the street again, when I saw him open his mouth and begin to run after me. He had remembered something out of Pidge. I escaped, however, and as I leapt on an omnibus, I saw again the enormous emblem of the marble arch. I saw that massive symbol of the modern mind, a door with no house to it, the gigantic gate of nowhere. How I Found the Superman Readers of Mr. Bernard Shaw and other modern writers may be interested to know that the Superman has been found. I found him. He lives in South Croydon. My success will be a great blow to Mr. Shaw, who has been following quite a false scent, and is now looking for the creature in Blackpool, and as for Mr. Wells' notion of generating him out of gases in a private laboratory, I always thought it doomed to failure. I assure Mr. Wells that the Superman at Croydon was born in the ordinary way, though he himself, of course, is anything but ordinary. Nor are his parents unworthy of the wonderful being whom they have given to the world. The name of Lady Hypatia Smith Brown, now Lady Hypatia Hag, will never be forgotten in the East End, where she did such splendid social work. 
Her constant cry of save the children referred to the cruel neglect of children's eyesight involved in allowing them to play with crudely painted toys. She quoted unanswerable statistics to prove that children allowed to look at violet and vermilion often suffered from failing eyesight in their extreme old age, and it was owing to her ceaseless crusade that the pestilence of monkey on the stick was almost swept from Hoxton. The devoted worker would tramp the streets untiringly, taking away the toys from all the poor children, who were often moved to tears by her kindness. Her good work was interrupted partly by a new interest in the creed of Zoroaster, and partly by a savage blow from an umbrella. It was inflicted by a dissolute Irish apple-woman who, on returning from some orgy to her ill-kept apartment, found Lady Hypatia in the bedroom taking down an oleograph, which, to say the least of it, could not really elevate the mind. At this the ignorant and partly intoxicated Celt dealt the social reformer a severe blow, adding to it an absurd accusation of theft. The lady's exquisitely balanced mind received a shock, and it was during a short mental illness that she married Dr. Hagg. Of Dr. Hagg himself, I hope there is no need to speak. Anyone even slightly acquainted with those daring experiments in neo-individualist eugenics, which are now the one absorbing interest of the English democracy, must know his name, and often commend it to the personal protection of an impersonal power. Early in life he brought to bear that ruthless insight into the history of religion which he had gained in boyhood as an electrical engineer. Later he became one of our greatest geologists, and achieved that bold and bright outlook upon the future of socialism which only geology can give. At first there seemed something like a rift, a faint but perceptible fissure, between his views and those of his aristocratic wife, for she was in favor, to use her own powerful epigram, of protecting the poor against themselves, while he declared piteously in a new and striking metaphor that the weakest must go to the wall. Eventually, however, the married pair perceived an essential union in the unmistakable modern character of both their views, and in this enlightening and intelligible formula their souls found peace. The result is that this union of the two highest types of our civilization, the fashionable lady and the all but vulgar medical man, has been blessed by the birth of the superman, that being whom all the laborers in Battersea are so eagerly expecting night and day. I found the house of Dr. and Lady Hypatia Hag without much difficulty. It is situated in one of the last straggling streets of Croydon, and overlooked by a line of poplars. I reached the door towards the twilight, and it was natural that I should fancifully see something dark and monstrous in the dim bulk of that house, which contained the creature who was more marvellous than the children of men. When I entered the house I was received with exquisite courtesy by Lady Hypatia and her husband but I found much greater difficulty in actually seeing the Superman, who is now about fifteen years old, and is kept by himself in a quiet room. Even my conversation with the father and mother did not quite clear up the character of this mysterious being. Lady Hypatia, who has a pale and poignant face, 
and is clad in those impalpable and pathetic greys and greens with which she has brightened so many homes in Hoxton, did not appear to talk to her offspring with any of the vulgar vanity of an ordinary human mother. I took a bold step and asked if the Superman was nice-looking. He creates his own standard, you see, she replied with a slight sigh. Upon that plane he is more than Apollo, seen from our lower plane, of course, and she sighed again. I had a horrible impulse and said suddenly, Has he got any hair? There was a long and painful silence, and then Dr. Hagg said smoothly, Everything upon that plane is different. What he has got is not, well, not, of course, what we call hair, but... Don't you think, said his wife very softly, don't you think that really, for the sake of argument, when talking to the mere public, one might call it hair? Perhaps you are right, said the doctor, after a few moments' reflection. In connection with hair like that, one must speak in parables. Well, what on earth is it? I asked in some irritation. If it isn't hair, is it feathers? Not feathers as we understand feathers, answered Hag in an awful voice. I got up some irritation. Can I see him at any rate? I asked. I am a journalist and have no earthly motives except curiosity and personal vanity. I should like to say that I had shaken hands with the Superman. The husband and wife had both got heavily to their feet and stood embarrassed. Well, of course you know, said Lady Hypatia, with the really charming smile of the aristocratic hostess. You know, he can't exactly shake hands, not hands, you know, the, the structure, of course. I broke out of all social bounds and rushed at the door of the room which I thought to contain the incredible creature. I burst it open, the room was pitch dark. But from the front of me came a small, sad yelp, and from behind me a double shriek. "'You have done it now,' cried Dr. Hagg, bearing his bald brow in his hands. "'You have let in a draught on him, and he is dead.' As I walked away from Croydon that night, I saw men in black carrying out a coffin that was not of any human shape. The wind wailed above me, whirling the poplars, so that they drooped and nodded, like the plumes of some cosmic funeral. It is indeed, said Dr. Hagg, the whole universe weeping over the frustration of its most magnificent birth. But I thought that there was a hoot of laughter in the high wail of the wind. THE NEW HOUSE Within a stone's throw of my house they are building another house. I'm glad they are building it, and I am glad it is within a stone's throw, quite well within it, with a good catapult. Nevertheless, I have not yet cast the first stone at the new house, not being, strictly speaking, guiltless myself in the matter of new houses. And indeed, in such cases, there is a strong protest to be made. The whole curse of the last century has been what is called the swing of the pendulum. That is the idea that man must go alternately from one extreme to the other. It is a shameful and even shocking fancy. It is the denial of the whole dignity of mankind. When man is alive, he stands still. It is only when he is dead that he swings. But whenever one meets modern thinkers, as one often does, progressing toward a madhouse, 
one always finds on inquiry that they have just had a splendid escape from another madhouse. Thus hundreds of people become socialists, not because they have tried socialism and found it nice, but because they have tried individualism and found it particularly nasty. Thus many embrace Christian science, solely because they are quite sick of heathen science. They are so tired of believing that everything is matter, that they will even take refuge in the revolting fable that everything is mind. Man ought to march somewhere, but modern man in his sick reaction is ready to march nowhere, so long as it is the other end of nowhere. The case of building houses is a strong instance of this. Early in the nineteenth century our civilization chose to abandon the Greek and medieval idea of a town with walls, limited and defined, with a temple for faith and a marketplace for politics, and it chose to let the city grow like a jungle with blind cruelty and bestial unconsciousness, so that London and Liverpool are the greatest cities we now see. Well, people have reacted against that. They have grown tired of living in a city which is as dark and barbaric as a forest, only not as beautiful. And there has been an exodus into the country of those who could afford it, and some I could name who can't. Now, as soon as this quite rational recoil occurred, it flew at once to the opposite extreme. People went about with beaming faces, boasting that they were twenty-three miles from a station. Rubbing their hands, they exclaimed in rollicking asides that their butchers only called once a month, and that their bakers started out with fresh hot loaves, which were quite stale before they reached the table. A man would praise this little house in a quiet valley, but gloomily admit, with a slight shake of the head, that a human habitation on the distant horizon was faintly discernible on a clear day. Rival ruralists would quarrel about which had the most completely inconvenient postal service, and there were many jealous heart-burnings if one friend found out any uncomfortable situation which the other friend had thoughtlessly overlooked. In the feverish summer of this fanaticism there arose the phrase that this or that part of England is being built over. Now there is not the slightest objection in itself to England being built over by men any more than there is to it being, as it already is, built over by birds, or by squirrels, or by spiders. But if birds' nests were so thick on a tree that one could see nothing but nests, and no leaves at all, I should say that the bird civilization was becoming a bit decadent. If whenever I tried to walk down the road I found the whole thoroughfare, one crawling carpet of spiders, closely interlocked, I should feel a distress verging on distaste. If one were, at every turn, crowded, elbowed, overlooked, overcharged, sweated, racked, rented, swindled, and sold up by avaricious and arrogant squirrels, one might at last remonstrate. But the great towns have grown intolerable solely because of such suffocating vulgarities and tyrannies. It is not humanity that disgusts us in the huge cities. It is inhumanity. It is not that there are human beings, but that they are not treated as such. We do not, I hope, dislike men and women. We only dislike their being made into a sort of jam, crushed together so that they are not merely powerless, but shapeless. It is not the presence of people that makes London appalling. It is merely the absence of the people. Therefore I dance with joy to think that my part of England is being built over, 
so long as it is being built over in a human way, at human intervals, and in a human proportion. So long, in short, as I am not myself built over, like a pagan slave buried in the foundations of a temple, or an American clerk in a star-striking pagoda of flats. I am delighted to see the faces and the homes of a race of bipeds, to which I am not only attracted by strange affection, but to which also, by a touching coincidence, I actually happen to belong. I am not one desiring deserts. I am not Timon of Athens. If my town were Athens, I would stay in it. I am not Simeon Stylites, except in the mournful sense that every Saturday I find myself on the top of a newspaper column. I am not in the desert repenting of some monstrous sins. At least, I am repenting of them all right, but not in the desert. I do not want the nearest human house to be too distant to see. That is my objection to the wilderness. But neither do I want the nearest human house to be too close to see. That is my objection to the modern city. I love my fellow man. I do not want him so far off that I can only observe anything of him through a telescope. Nor do I want him so close that I can examine parts of him with a microscope. I want him within a stone's throw of me, so that, whenever it is really necessary, I may throw the stone. Perhaps, after all, it may not be a stone. Perhaps, after all, it may be a bouquet, or a snowball, or a firework, or a free-trade loaf. Perhaps they will ask for a stone, and I shall give them bread. But it is essential that they should be within reach. How can I love my neighbor as myself, if he gets out of range for snowballs? There should be no institution out of the reach of an indignant or admiring humanity. I could hit the nearest house quite well with the catapult, but the truth is that the catapult belongs to a little boy I know, and with characteristic youthful selfishness he has taken it away. The end of chapters 19 through 21